Al Jazeera podcast. They've been largely neutral during 12 years of war, but now Syria's Druze are protesting in their heartland and they're demanding Bashar al-Assad step down. But why now? And what's really behind their anger? And could these demonstrations gain momentum? I'm Imran Khan and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests. In Washington, D.C. is Moaz Mustafa, Executive Director of Syrian Emergency Task Force. That's a non-profit that focuses on political advocacy, civil governance and humanitarian aid for Syrians. In Northampton, Massachusetts is Stephen Hademan, Professor and Middle East Studies Program Director at Smith College. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. And in Norman, Oklahoma is Joshua Landis, Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at Oklahoma University. He writes and also manages SyriaComment.com, a daily newsletter on Syrian politics. A warm welcome to you all. Uh, I'd like to begin in Northampton, Massachusetts with uh, Stephen. Um, Stephen, this is a community that has largely been very, very loyal to President Bashar al-Assad. In fact, the spiritual leaders of the Druze community have given their blessing to the protest, but they've stopped short of calling for what the protests are calling for, which is the removal of Bashar al-Assad. How worrying is this for the president? I think this has to be seen as a, as a deeply troubling development by the Assad regime. I'm not sure I would describe the Druze community as deeply loyal to the regime in the course of the conflict over the past 12 years. As, as the introduction indicated, they've remained neutral, but they have taken steps like resisting uh, conscription for young men in the Druze community. So there has been a very calculated position on the part of the Druze community in relation to the regime and the conflict. And we've seen that completely collapse in the last several weeks as economic shocks have pushed the Druze community in Sueda and Syrians all over the country beyond a tipping point that would prevent them from publicly expressing their dissatisfaction with the regime. And this, of course, is, is an enormous problem because this is a regime that does not, at the moment, have the resources to respond constructively to the economic crisis that Syrians are experiencing. And as long as that's the case, it's very difficult to see a way out of this crisis for the regime. If they crack down, they risk pushing the Druze and others in loyalist areas along the coast more forcefully into the opposition. If they don't crack down, they risk empowering those who are dissatisfied with the regime, and, and that is a large number of people, to move into the streets. So this is a huge issue for the regime. It's a huge problem. And from my perspective, the regime really has no easy choices at the moment. No easy choices. Mars Mustafa, would you agree with that? I, I would agree, and especially with the part that the Druze community have not been, I would say, historically loyal to the Assad regime. They've spoken out many times throughout the revolution. They, uh, at the beginning of the peaceful, nonviolent protests, who by the dictator's own admission was over 11 months uh, of, of nonviolent protests that was faced with, with a horrific crackdown, the Druze community have been, you know, trying to, to balance being able to speak out and at the same time uh, make sure that they're safe from the horrific repression of the Assad regime. But what we're seeing today, 16 or now 17 days of nonstop protests of elderly youth, men, women coming out 
and very clearly saying how they really feel about the Assad regime. With the support of their leadership there, I think it's quite clear that the Druze community, just like all the other Syrian people, regardless of their background, whether they're minorities or the Sunni majority, Arabs or Kurds, have very much understood what the Assad regime is and that the road that the Assad regime is taking them on is one uh, that, that is complete darkness. And, and I think it's, the, it's very important today more than ever to highlight what people across not just Sweda but across the rest of Syria that are standing up in solidarity with Sweda is calling for a political transition, the implementation of Security Council 2254 that until today has kind of been adopted but never really gone anywhere while the world kind of turns away from the conflict in Syria. Let me bring in Joshua Landis here. Joshua, we aren't looking at a Syrian revolution 2.0, are we? No, no, we're not. Um, it, you know, it's hard to say. Syrians are in a terrible situation, as both your guests have said. The poverty is extreme. The currency has been collapsing. In a sense, you know, um, sanctions from Europe and the United States have been working. And we see this uprising that's going on in the government-controlled zones also going on in the American-controlled zone and deep unhappiness in North Aleppo and the Turkish-controlled zone. Syrians are in a very bad position. All of these various regimes, whether it's the opposition, whether it's the Kurdish-led SDF, are all very dictatorial. And, um, and this, you know, this is, presents a terrible problem for Assad, as your guests have said. Now, it must be said that the flags that are being flown in the Druze region are the Druze flags with five stripes colors. You see very few of the rebel flags, the traditional rebel flags, with three stars. And that's a statement on the part of the Druze that they're not, you know, on the one hand, they're calling for the fall of the regime, but on the other hand, they're not embracing the entirely the revolution that broke out in 2011. And, and this has been a dilemma for the uprising because there's been deep divisions amongst Syrians. And that's why Syria is so divided today. Uh, Stephen, um, this idea that we're talking about a very divided Syria never would never really applied to the loyalist areas. It's something very, very new. Traditionally speaking, um, President Bashar al-Assad would have cracked down on this almost straight away. The fact that it's now, what, 17 days in the, into these protests suggests that he's taking a softer uh, approach or no? Well, I think I think the the senior figures in the regime recognize very well the difficult consequences that would follow a crackdown against the Druze community in, in Sweden. I, I, I imagine that the conversations happening in, in the presidential palace right now are very much about the trade-offs associated with repression, violent repression of the kind the regime uh, used routinely over the past 12 years as opposed to finding some strategy of accommodation that might find a way, develop a way to tamp down these very visible expressions from Syrians of the regime's illegitimacy, of its failure to govern, of its failure to provide the basic necessities uh, of economic uh, life for, for ordinary people. And so there's, a, there's, I think, almost without any question, uh, a, a quite intense debate underway about whether and when a crackdown will be needed. I, I frankly would be surprised if we did not see a shift 
to some increased level of violence on the part of the regime uh, as these protests develop. And, and that's precisely because of the effect that they're having that Moaz mentioned, in, in which they are inspiring Syrians and other areas, including in, in, in loyalist parts of the country, where very quiet expressions of defiance and opposition are are, are now being heard. I, I do want to respond, though, quickly, if I may, to the comment about sanctions working, because I think we also need to recognize that what makes this crisis so difficult for the regime is that there are lots of vectors of economic suffering in Syria. There is the destruction caused during the war by the Assad regime and its Russian sponsors. There is the corruption of the Assad regime itself. And there is the collapse of the Lebanese economy, which has had a huge impact on Syria. So while sanctions are certainly one piece of the broader picture that defines Syria's economic crisis, we need to be very careful about not exaggerating its role in the conditions that have led to these protests. Mm. Right. Uh, Moaz, one of the things that is a surprise for me, I was talking to um, a few Syrian friends who are based in Damascus, uh, and they're saying that if we did this in Damascus, they would have cracked down on us straight away. Instead, what we're doing is we're protesting very softly, very quietly, but on social media. But if we were out in the streets, this would be a very different scenario. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the regime makes different calculations in terms of how it deals with 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 sort of you know people that are rising against it. I mean, I would I would counter the point of Mr. Landis that somehow Syrians are super divided. That uh, you know, in, in these protests, only Druze flags. I would I would highlight that in every one of these protests was the 1959 flag used by the Syrian revolution uh, and, and gone on. I would also reiterate what Dr. Heidemann has said, where you have people inspired in other other areas. I mean, there was a uh, there was a, an Alawite uh, activist on the coast that came out, stood with the Druze, and then made his way to Sueda, by the way, in order to to find protection. Uh, and the regime arrested him on the way. And now we know what happens in regime jails. They torture to death men, women, children. And there's no equivalency between any other party uh, and, and what the regime has done in terms of a sadistic nature of, uh, of, of repression. But but just to, to, to your question, I think uh, in Damascus, if, if uh, the regime looks and sees that, you know, there is a Sunni neighborhood, and I hate speaking in sectarian terms, but that's how this regime operates, he has little problem sort of going out there, arresting, killing. He also needs to preserve an image, uh, you know, and he's looking out at, at whether it's the United States or others that are watching as, as someone who's, you know, he's trying to say, I protect minorities. So you can't just go down and crack down on Sueda, although we've seen in the past when Sueda did come out in the past against him, he essentially allowed for 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 ISIS to be able to go in there and, and even came out and you know and, and said that you know extremists are going to come and slaughter you and, and so on. It's a very manipulative regime. It's very vindictive. It never forgets. And it, and I would argue that in some places the regime. But look at Idlib. No one's batting an eye. But but the Assad regime and Russia have been bombarding yesterday Idlib. Entire villages, children dying. Um, so he has different ways of, of dealing with these different areas in his country. But what I would reiterate is they are all reunited in one thing. They want to see an end to this brutal regime. They want to see a transition to, to something different, and, and, uh, and they deserve that um, elsewhere. But I do agree that in Damascus, it's much more dangerous. And we've seen lately in Damascus that he's put out security forces in different places, had, had flyovers in areas, worried about 
renewed protest there. Again, all of that's being inspired by Sweda and other places that have come out in solidarity. And it's truly courageous what the people of Sweda are doing, raising both the Druze flags and the flags of the Syrian revolution. Uh, Joshua, it is a very interesting strategy. It's one that has worked for Bashar al-Assad uh, over the years of treating different areas slightly differently. But as, they, as there is becoming this kind of united voice, in fact, that's the question. Is there a united voice amongst all of the, the people that are coming out and protesting, whether they're doing it quietly on social media or whether they're out on the streets, for example, in Sweden? There are some, there are some definite... Uh, similarities between all the regions that are calling for uh, the end of the regime. The, the problem, I think, uh, for the demonstrators is that in Sueda, for example, in the main square there, there's about two to 3,000 demonstrators, I think, is what most of the reporting estimates. And, and that's not going to overturn this regime. And we've seen the regime is willing to use brutal force against the uprising, and it has for the last 12 years. And it's won. And it's one in part because both Europe and the United States were fearful of what the opposition would bring. That's both Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And they turned away from the rebellion. And this, this was the downfall of the rebellion. Had there been a George Washington, had there been real unity, I think we would have seen a very different outcome. Like Ukraine, the United States and Europe would have pumped in real arms and helped them win. But at no point in this uprising was the United States or Europe willing to see the destruction of the Syrian army for fear Joshua, that the country are would fall. Are you saying, in effect, that this uprising in Suweda could be armed by the United States in order to get rid of Bashar al-Assad? Because that's the road to civil war. No, I'm not saying. I think America has given up on the rebellion. And that's very important, because I don't see a way that the rebels and the people who are very unhappy and are, are suffering terribly in the Druze region are going to overturn the regime. Right. And I don't believe that the, that the opposition in Syria today, which has been largely defeated, is going to be able, through demonstrations, to overthrow this regime, which has shown time and time again its willingness to use force and the military's integrity, uh, the leadership of the military, and it's a willingness to use force against uh, demonstrators and opposition. Uh, Stephen, let's broaden this out to the international community. Um, for want of a better word, Bashar al-Assad has, quote-unquote, won the civil war. He did it with the support of Russia and Iran. Where are Russia and Iran right now? When I mean, both of them are busy, Ukraine trying to get back the JCPOA, various political lifting sanctions. Both those countries have got their own problems. Is Syria even on their agenda anymore? I think Syria remains on the agenda for both countries. It's clear that in the Russian case, the scale of the resources, the, the military resources that it's been prepared to commit in the Syrian battlefield has, has declined. But otherwise, on the diplomatic front, uh, even on the economic front, uh, I, I don't see any significant pullback in the level of support that Iran and, and Russia are providing to the Assad regime. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about the effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the balance of influence between Iran and Russia inside of, of, of Syria, inside the regime. 
with a lot of, of, of speculation that Iran has benefited uh, in terms of its relative balance of influence uh, over the regime, and that may well be true. But I don't think we've seen any any significant decline in in the support of, of the Assad in support for the Assad regime from either of its main international sponsors. But about about whether the regime has has won, I, I think this is the big uh, question that these protests confront the regime with. It is now witnessing a large scale uh, uprising or or protest movement in one part of the country that has spilled over into other parts of the country. The protests signal the clear perception among Syrians of the failure of the regime, at least in economic terms, of its illegitimacy. Mm. And even if I agree with I agree with Joshua that these protesters are not on their own going to overthrow the regime, but they totally undermine the narrative of victory. They undermine the narrative of legitimacy that is happening at a time when the normalization process that Arab states in the region have embarked on has been failing. It comes at a moment when the regime really has no resources with which to respond to these protests. In fact, it will increase subsidy cuts this month in, in, in the country. So I think we need to see this as a really significant crack in this narrative of victory that the regime has tried to put forward. Now, Moaz, if I understand this correctly, and please uh, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but you just came back from uh, Syria with um, senior American politicians. Is that right? What were, right. Telling you? what were they telling you? So I, I went into, there were a couple of congressional delegations, one that went and met with uh, Syrian opposition uh, coalition and, and, and activists, white helmets, uh, in Turkey, that was a bipartisan delegation from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And I also took uh, uh, three members of Congress, Congressman Ben Klein, uh, um, Mr. Scott Fitzgerald, and Congressman French Hill, to northwest Syria and down to the border of the Turkey-Syria border. There they met with uh, with people across the board, the first responders and, and the medical doctors that have and continued to work under Russian, Iranian, and Assad bombardment to save lives. They met with the Syrian opposition coalition and, the, and others within the Syrian opposition that are, again, calling for a, a real uh, roadmap that allows us to go and, 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 and be able to achieve, you know, the, the uh, Security Council Resolution 2254. And we discussed Sueda, the Northeast, uh, what's happening all over Syria. And there was a firm commitment by these members of Congress that when they come back to the United States, they will do all they can to pressure the Biden administration uh, to do more in order to help protect lives in Syria and also in order to help move things in the right direction in order to continue the pressure on the Assad regime. Um, I would say that uh, perhaps the Biden administration has put Syria on the back burner. I could agree with Mr. Landis on that. But I think that the fact is that there are many within the United States government, particularly in the United States Congress, that are learning and continue to know exactly what's happening in Syria and continue to push for what the Syrian people are calling for. Yeah. And afterwards, I had most, yes, sir. And I just wanted to say one thing, if you don't mind, is, yeah. you know, we keep looking at this saying Assad has won. Look, 13 years, Assad's there. Well, he had the entire Russian Air Force and and in, in, in a huge amount of percentage of his ground troops are Iranian-backed militias and an Iranian-backed and the conventional military. 
and still he does not control the northwest he does not control the northeast the dara and sweda although they're under his control are obviously not they're protesting against them all the time the 55 kilometer zone continues to be out of his control in the south and i think that's an important reminder that the syrian people in the revolution has survived for 13 years and that's what's truly inspirational not that assad with all of this military support and very little little aid to those that are going against him which are the syrian people themselves um, is, is, is barely hanging on and is by no means assured of his victory. I mean, what Assad won is a, is a very different conversation and almost another show entirely. But Joshua, I want to come to you. Um, Moaz was saying that he took these uh, congressional delegations, that there was this commitment from them to at least start to talk about Syria again. But real talk, real politics, what can the US really do right now? Uh, the US can do very little, unfortunately. Um, we're seeing in the Northeast, where the U.S. holds supreme, owns about 30 percent of Syrian territory, that there is great foment there between Arab tribes and the Kurdish-led SDF that America supports. And so America is juggling this, uh, this sort of boiling territory with two different nationalist aspirations, the Kurds and the Arabs. And in a sense, this is the Syrian dilemma. It is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious territory where um, people want very different things. And unfortunately, a, you know, the, the regime has ruled with brutality and it has kept uh, its Sorry, control. Joshua. Sorry, time. Joshua. We are running out of time and I do want to come to our other guests as well. Uh, Stephen, we've talked sure. about Russia, Iran. We've talked about uh, the US role in all of this, but there is an Arab role in all of this. Syria was recently welcomed back to the Arab League. Qatar in particular was against that move. Is there anybody that can have influence in the Arab world that can make a difference, do you think? You know, this is one of the, the challenges of normalization, which is how to translate it into influence on the ground inside of Syria. And so far, what we've seen is that the regime is fiercely determined to insulate itself from the kind of pressure that normalization might be expected to bring. So it wants to benefit from reintegration on one hand without making reciprocal steps that would respond to the concerns of Arab neighbors. And I suspect those concerns now include avoiding a return to the levels of violence of the past. But it doesn't seem to me that there's very much leverage on the part of these Arab governments that they can use to try to temper whatever path, whatever decision the Assad regime eventually makes about whether to repress or not. Uh, Moaz, just very quickly, because we are running out of time, but can the Arab, is the Arab League useful in this, or again, is it just a useless debating society? Well, the Arab League has been pretty useless in general, but that being said, right now, the concern for the Arab countries that have normalized with the Assad regime um, are their own concerns. They were worried about Captagon. Captagon continues to flood and create criminal networks throughout their areas. They were worried about Iran. Assad welcomed the Iranian president after the entrance into the Arab League with massive fanfare. They were worried about refugees. Not a single person can return to Syria as long as Assad rules because they don't want to die. So they've gone against their own interests. They put the leverage that they had over Assad. Now Assad has over them and they need to recalculate that, that strategy. I want to thank all our guests, Amaz Mustafa, Joshua Landis and Stephen Haderman. This episode was produced by Mohammed Alaishi, Um Kulsun Sharif, Fungi Nguyen, Hannah Shakir and Gemma Harris. 
Studio sound was by Aston Goodison, and the program was edited by Alex Otasevich, Zaina Badr, Khalid Sultan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening, and tune in on Thursday for our next episode. This week on The Take, Libya and Israel have no foreign relations and a frosty history. Why an unofficial meeting between foreign ministers sparked protest across Libya. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.